There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Right now, we have up to four places. So people are still afraid. I will be happy when the idea is completely Ebola food. That's my prayer. Hello and welcome to Radio Motherboard. The woman you heard in the open is DeConte Davis, a 24-year-old Ebola survivor from Liberia. DeConte contracted Ebola almost exactly a year ago. She was hoping that, by now, Ebola would be over, and for a moment, it looked like it was. The World Health Organization says 42 days must pass in a country without any new cases after the last case has been cured in order to declare an outbreak over. That happened in Liberia between March 28th and May 9th, and the country was declared Ebola-free. Unfortunately, the reprieve is now over. On June 29th, officials recorded a new case of Ebola in Liberia, a 17-year-old man who died from the disease. There have been four more cases since then. It appears that Liberia, like its neighboring Sierra Leone and Guinea, has not eradicated the virus after all. It's tragic to know that even with international support, these countries have not succeeded in ending the epidemic. We decided to take this week to talk about that fact and why it might be. We'll be talking to Kayla Rubel, associate editor at Vice News, who covered the epidemic from the ground. We'll also be talking to Mahad Ibrahim, who spent time in Liberia building systems to track the spread of the virus. We're wondering, what have we learned, if anything, from a year and a half of Ebola outbreak? Hello, and welcome to Radio Motherboard. I'm Adrian Jeffries, Managing Editor, and I'm here with Kayla Rubel, Associate Editor at Vice News. Hi, how's it going? Thanks for joining us. No problem. Happy to so be here. this week we are talking about uh, something slightly heavier than usual, um, the Ebola outbreak that has been going on since December 2013. So Kayla, you covered the Ebola outbreak for Vice News. Yeah, yeah, I actually covered it from the first day that World Health Organization um, made the announcement back in March 2014 that there was an official outbreak and have sort of been following it ever since. So I've gone from being just as confused as the rest of the public to sort of seeing it full circle. And I was there in March uh, 2015 to report on it and on the recovery efforts or what we thought were the recovery efforts. Yeah, so it was kind of disappointing to see at the end of last month that there were new cases of Ebola in Liberia after the outbreak had been declared over there. Was that, was that unexpected for you? 
You know, unfortunately, it wasn't unexpected, but it was heartbreaking. Um, being there in March and seeing how optimistic all the people of Liberia were and how happy they were. When I was there, they had released the last patient from the hospital, so they hadn't been officially declared Ebola free. It takes um, 42 days for that to happen, uh, but they were pretty optimistic that they were going to really kick the disease out of their country. Um, and then people, they were shifting to try to help their neighbors because that's how Liberians are. Um, so to think and know that this comes back, this has come back now um, after they were officially declared Ebola free was pretty um, upsetting and people I've talked to have said they're scared and they're nervous um, and but I think unfortunately it was expected the borders in these countries are really open so there was always the possibility that a case would be brought in um, there was also the possibility that maybe a new outbreak could start that's something that scientists recognizes 100% in the realm of possibility with um, that it, Ebola comes from uh, often bats and other animals that live in the bush so and these have been eaten um, in these cultures for a long time and still are uh, and it can be trans uh, transmitted from the blood um, being ingested so that's sort of it's sort of been something right. that people have thought of I think this was a bit unexpected because uh, World Health Organization data shows that um, this strain of the 17-year-old boy that just uh, was died of Ebola in June, um, the first new case in Liberia for a while, uh, it looks like his case was not imported from another country. It also looks like it was not a new out uh, an, a new chain of transmission from an animal. Um, it might actually then there's so there's kind of it's kind of unclear where it's come from. So that's yeah. a bit scary. Right. That seems like it's extra worrying if it's been sticking around in the country and people didn't realize it. Maybe there are enclaves right. where people are still dying from the disease. Yeah, that's sort of the concern is that we don't know. It's just, you know, there's been this talk of maybe it comes through sexual transmission, but there's really no concrete evidence of that. Um, we, there's just sort of an understanding that Ebola does stay in your system, it does stay in your bodily fluids, but we don't really have concrete data. This is the first time, I reported on this quite a bit, this is the first time we've ever had, I mean, really any survivors, particularly this number. When you have you have 11,000 people um, have died, well over 20,000 people infected. Um, so that's, like what do the math, that's at least over 10,000 survivors. We've never seen that before. So it's, that's, that aspect's kind of scary too. Or were there hidden pockets of infections that we didn't know about? Um, these health systems are very weak. Uh, they're not, um, especially in rural areas, there isn't a lot of coverage of the health system. Um, so it's plausible to think that that could happen. So maybe we should back up. You mentioned that Ebola, we're not sure if it can be transmitted sexually, although it kind of seems like if you're that close with a person, you could maybe get it some other way. Um, right. But what? let's just go back to the basics. Like, what is Ebola? Mm -hmm. What is happening to these people when they get it? Um, and how does it spread if not? by sexual transmission. Right. No, no, great question, and we should talk about that. That's one of the biggest misunderstandings, right, whenever, when these discussions happen. Um, so Ebola, it's a hemorrhagic fever. Uh, it's trans, it is, um, it has a 21-day uh, incubation period. So if I have Ebola right now and you're around me, um, there's about 21 days that you should monitor yourself for potentially having the virus. Um, but that being said, uh, until someone becomes symptomatic, they're not contagious. So if I get become symptomatic tomorrow, but you were around me today, you're fine. So that's something very important. Now let's talk about symptoms. Um, I think the one everyone thinks about is the really scary um, movie-like uh, um, idea of blood like coming from your eyes and all your body parts. But that happens like 
not as dramatically as you think it does and much later on. Um, so we're just talking typically the first sign and symptom is fever. Um, after fever, vomiting, diarrhea, uh, sort of then you go into deliriousness and then you might get to the point of some sort of hemorrhaging or bleeding. Um, so, so yeah, so that's um, what Ebola is. And then it takes about, it's seeming with the healthcare in Liberia right now, a couple of weeks for a patient to really recover. And then as they're being treated in the hospital, which treatment, you know, we don't have any scientific, um, FDA or approved vaccines or treatments um, for the virus, but really just good healthcare can help someone, hydration, fluids, all of that stuff, all these things that really weren't available in Liberia, Guinea, and Sierra Leone. Um, once someone is cured of the virus, this means they've been tested, and so they test negative for Ebola, where the day before they would have tested positive. Um, then they can be released from the hospital. Uh, they're being advised at this point to not have sex for 90 days. Um, past studies have shown that 90 days after someone is clear of the virus, it still stays in their fluids. We're also seeing some studies come out of this outbreak showing the fluid still in um, like someone's eyeball. There was kind of that big dramatic story a few months ago about that. So we know the virus lingers. We just don't know how contagious it is while it's lingering um, or if it's contagious at all. So, so yeah, so that's sort of the gist. I don't know if you have any more questions about it. Let me know. Happy to. Yeah. Well, you mentioned there are no FDA approved vaccines. And I remember reading that there was some work on a vaccine. And then some of the patients who were working on working in treatment centers in West Africa, but were American and got airlifted back home for their treatment, which nice for them, um, were given I think at least one of those patients was given some some cutting-edge treatment. Is there, like, we've been fighting this thing for a year. Mm-hmm. The whole world is aware of it. It's incredibly sad and is getting a lot of public sympathy. Are we getting closer to getting a vaccine or getting better at treating this thing? Gosh, that's I've been so fascinated by this since the beginning. I mean, Ebola is such a great but horrible example of how we develop drugs and medicine. Um, We've known about Ebola since the 1970s when it was first discovered. Um, Because it's a rare tropical disease in Africa, I, you know, the it financially wouldn't make sense for most drug companies to put a lot of money into investing in that sort of thing. Luckily, governments like the U.S. and um, a few other governments have put funding to these companies to sort of develop drugs over the last couple decades, particularly with the fear of it maybe being a biological threat. So we did have some research on that and some drugs that had kind of gotten through either initial approval stages or even like animal trials, Um, but it kind of just were sitting on a shelf somewhere. There wasn't a lot that people... They hadn't really gone forward with any approvals. Of course, the outbreak happened. Things really escalated in August. Um, the UN, the U.S. government, um, Canadian government, kind of you know stepped forward to say, okay, we need to speed this process up. So we have seen um, at least um, there was a drug trial going on while I was in Liberia. I was able to go to the testing center there um, where they were administering uh, the drug to people. Um, and no, sorry, the vaccine. So the vaccine is to give to people preemptively. Um, before an outbreak and then a treatment is given to someone who's sick. Um, so uh, that's sort of what's going on with the vaccines in the trial stage. The unfortunate thing about the fact that the Ebola outbreak has begun to wane is that you then therefore have less people to test the virus on, which is kind of sad. And you wonder, like, couldn't we have done this maybe even faster, which is, I know it's sounds really critical to say that when we had thousands of people being infected. Um, 
But, yeah, we're getting to a point where they actually were considering stopping the next phase of the trial in Liberia for efficacy. They could test it for safety, and they could test it to analyze your blood and see if there was an immune response, but they can't really... You might, that person in Liberia may never see an Ebola case again or be around it, so we won't know if they've been infected, Um, which is a shame, but they have to keep pushing forward with testing these vaccines and these trials. When it comes to treatments, a couple of the treatment options, um, further testing has actually been stopped, um, and... Because a lot of what was used during the outbreak was just sort of, especially in in Western hospitals, by the doctors and volunteers who were airlifted out. A lot of that was just sort of guesswork, like maybe this will work, maybe this will work. Um, There was ZMAP, which seems to be the most promising, as it was actually um, initiated as an Ebola treatment, where some of the other ones were treatments for other viruses that people thought might work. So that's a little slower going than the vaccine. I think there's more optimism about a vaccine. So it definitely doesn't sound like this is beyond our abilities to come up with a vaccine or a treatment that's more effective than just hydrating the patient. It seems like the real obstacle is the lack of a paying market for the drug and the fact that we are seeing fewer cases and therefore have fewer people to test on. Um, Right. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's the big problem is the lack of a market. I think this is the first time where Ebola was actually seen as um, a real problem to people uh, because I think um, maybe fortunately for the development of drugs, but unfortunately there was a little bit of overhype and overscare um, in the U.S. and other countries about, oh, my gosh, what's Ebola going to do um, if it comes here or what if, you know, the, this fear that it would spread all over the world. Um, it's really not uh, an easy disease to catch. So that fear was a little overblown. But, yeah, I think that is the big problem. Um I think, though, that this Ebola outbreak was such a wake-up call for how unprepared we are for any infectious disease epidemic um, or outbreak, especially one that would be much more contagious, something more SARS-like, something that just sort of spreads rapidly, um, that people are still in gear to find this um, Ebola vaccine. And I think with the cases still going, it's still in people's consciousness. It's still scientists are kind of you know, excited about this, the National Institutes of Health in the U.S., they're really, really behind a big project um, and vaccine trials. So I think, I think hopefully people, at least in the scientific and research community and, you know, um, uh, pharmaceutical community will sort of stay focused on it. But that's always going to be the problem. And, you know, when you have a rare tropical disease, um, what's the incentive to put money into that versus a cholesterol drug or antidepressant or something that's going to be more used and It's hard to sort of argue either way on that, I guess. Right. So my last question would be, throughout your reporting and all the people you talked to, did you feel like we were getting better at managing the outbreak? Like, what do you think we've learned from the outbreak um, that we can apply to future Ebola outbreaks and other types of diseases, as you mentioned, in the future? Um, Well, like we just talked about, I think we did learn a lot when it comes to science and research and actual virology. I think what we learned the most, though, and I saw this over and over again while I was there, I've heard this over and over again in my reporting, is how important it is to understand the local community and how important it is to understand what you're going into when you are dealing with an outbreak. I mean, you had in the beginning people showing up from international organizations and governments in like what looked like spacesuits, um, you know, infectious disease suits in random villages that have never even seen a helicopter, let alone are seeing a bunch of doctors, you know, a bunch of scientists come out in that kind of um, gear and then 
after that there's a big out- Ebola outbreak. Well, then there's a lot of confusion of how the how Ebola got there, who brought it. There's so many conspiracy theories, but they're understandable. There was this you know talk of oh like everyone in West Africa is denying that Ebola exists, but when you talk to people, you can understand why that was. It was never properly communicated in a way that really resonated with them. What you see really working beyond instead of you know U.S. scientists coming in and showing them a slide of Ebola and, or, you know, giving these warnings that like stop, to stop eating bush meat. What's really worked is actually um, the international organizations communicating with community leaders and making them understand what was going on with the Ebola outbreak, what needed to be done and how serious it was. Um, and those are the cases where I've talked to community leaders and village elders and they were then able to go back to their communities and relay the information and educate people. Um, and then in places like Monrovia, you hit Monrovia you have, which is the capital um, and was kind of the epicenter in Liberia of the outbreak, you have um, all these local leaders and local volunteers who are really like out in their community every day talking to people. And just that education is the most important part. As much as we would love to see the, call them, you know, the magic bullet of a treatment or vaccine, um, at the end of the day, we can stop an Ebola outbreak with education and good healthcare systems. So we don't really need that crazy science to get rid of it if we just focus on, you know, the basics of an Ebola outbreak. So I think that's the most thing we've learned is to really focus on local customs, local culture, um, and really working with local people to find out what their solutions are instead of imposing our own solutions, too. So, yeah. Thank you so much, Kayla. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Next, we're going to talk to Mahad Ibrahim, who was collecting some of this data that the World Health Organization uses to say, this is how many cases there are. The outbreak is now over. He has some criticisms for how that was done and has some suggestions for how we can do it better. This is Radio Motherboard. I'm Adrian Jeffries, Managing Editor, and I'm here with Mahad Ibrahim. Uh, Mahad, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm Mahad Ibrahim, uh, Managing Partner of Gobi Group, a global social innovation and design consultancy. You know, I'm somebody who's just passionate about like dealing with really tough social problems and finding interesting ways to solve them. I've done it you know, pretty much all over the world. So um, you graciously agreed to come by to talk today about your work during the Ebola outbreak in Liberia. You were there helping with some of the information management around the crisis, and I was wondering what was it like for you personally when you first got to the country, like when you stepped out of the plane and you realized you were there, was it the first time you'd been in Liberia? What was all of that like? Yeah, so I think the first time I landed in Liberia was, you know, I was a bit apprehend- apprehensive. I think, you know, you, were you afraid always... you were going to what? get the disease? Yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're worried about, you know, what's the risk to me? I mean, I had talked to doctors, I had talked to friends, and, you know, having worked in and around health in many sort of tough situations in Africa and other places. I guess I shouldn't have been as fearful as I was, but, you know, you land and I remember landing, you know, definitely you're feeling really apprehensive and you got off the plane at like the wee hours of the morning and there was U.S. soldiers standing right there in front of you after you got off the plane and they basically were were directing you to like two separate lines Um, and there was a big, like a big vat of like chlorine water and you had to go wash your hands, like basically wash like your hands and everything. Um, then they asked you how you felt and then they would take your temperature. Um, and then nobody was like, it was, nobody was touching. I mean, that was, it was, that was kind of evident from right when you, from the beginning is that you got on and you got off the plane and 
it seems weird, but, you know, we're so used to greeting each other, um, even just, you know, people you don't know, like a handshake or a hug or whatever it is. And that just did not happen. It, that pretty much started from the minute we got off the plane. Um, and, you know, you go through line after line and they're checking your temperature multiple times. And, you know, so it was, it was weird. And it definitely made you feel like, it definitely made you feel yeah, uh, not at ease. But, yeah. You must have gotten your temperature checked a lot during the time you were there. I feel like I got my t- temperature checked maybe 10,000 times since I was, yeah, like pretty much everywhere you go, you're getting your temperature checked. So once you got to the country, what was your next stop? I know you worked in a hospital and you also worked in like an office collating information. Yeah. So I think, my, you know, it was a very fast moving situation. So I think when I, when we got there, it wasn't just me, I was there with some other people, um, it wasn't exactly clear at that point in time. I think from when the conversation first started, which was like November, 2014, or actually more like October, 2014, things were really bad. Um, it, the peak had been reached. So things were coming down, but there was, you know, there were still a lot of cases every week. Um, and people were still sort of in crisis mode and we were getting, but lo- the logistics of just getting into a country, like Liberia, when flights are cut off and getting visas is challenging, was a nightmare. So it really took us weeks to just get to the country. And then when we got there, essentially where to plug in was very, it's, it's a challenge. It's not so orderly as people think a response is. So, you know, we would show up at the ministry. Um, and by that time, I think the response had kind of picked up. So there were people there. Um, and we had this dual role of just helping, but also trying to figure out ways in which we can improve the situation. So we'd spend some of our days at the ministry, spend other days talking to like officials. But myself, I, st- I spent a lot of time in health facilities and just trying to get the lay of the land. So I went pretty quickly and did things like would work, would walk, uh, go with the contact tracing teams. And contact tracing is essentially following up on people who've been exposed to the virus. Um, I would work in like the medical records room at the hospital and try to like help them figure out how they can sort their issues because the hospitals were continually like sources of, I mean, I guess not, I mean, there were, I guess guess there were sources of, um, fear because it's where sick people go. And if they're not able to handle it, um, it could be a big challenge. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, meetings, but I mean, honestly, for me, I spent a lot of time in health facilities because I feel like this problem is a local problem. And so I spend most of my time in the hospital or in the surrounding communities, talking to the doctors, talking to the nurses, talking to the administration staff, and trying to understand the problem from that perspective, less so than I did at the ministry. Right. So um, you guys were asked to come to the country to help organize some of the information around the outbreak. Um, And... It was interesting to me to hear about that side of it because I remember as a reporter writing about the outbreak, which started in March of 2014, getting these numbers from the World Health Organization, and they were very exact. It was like 2,498 cases, something like that, and just thinking like, wow, how do they count? How do they know? How do they count all of those people? And uh, it turns out it's... um, it's not that easy, and maybe those numbers weren't always as accurate as they seemed. Yeah, it's definitely not an easy task. Um, I can't really take a whole lot of credit for it. I mean, I was just there to help. But, I mean, there were a lot of people who were doing, I mean, working, you know, 16, 17 hours a day trying to coordinate this information. And, and, the, and the challenge is essentially it's twofold. So 
you know, Liberia, Guinea, Sierra Leone are not huge countries, but they're not very urban country, like urban countries. So there's a lot of rural areas, a lot of difficult like roads to get through a lot of sort of dirt roads. It's not easy to move around a lot of places. And so, you know, the virus wasn't always in the urban areas. I think in Monrovia, you know, it was a particular hotspot and parts around Freetown and Conakry were, um, and that's where a lot of the cases came from, but you have to hunt every single case. And so there were people, you know, all over the country, um, and they have to get that information to sort of the next level up. So imagine you spending, you know, the better part of a day going down a really rough road, um, working in a set of villages, getting information. And then you have to then get that information to say a more central place, which has internet or has a phone signal and then relay back that, relay that information back to the ministry. And then that's just the start. From that point on, there was like really, I would say a dozen or more people just working to turn that raw information into something that makes sense. Um, and that, you know, that process wasn't a glamorous process. It was, you know, basically, you know, data entry, working on Excel, um, you know, and that, and so, it, but it was the, what, it's where these statistics came from and it's where the maps came from. And that's essentially how they directed resources. And that's why it's so important. Right. So the, res- the results of this process were those counts of how many dead, those counts of how many people were infected how many people had recovered and the maps of where the disease was spreading. And I'm just imagining all the points along that process where you could miss a house that was back in, you know, the canopy and not know that there were people who had been exposed there all the way, you know, just transferring that information all the way from out in the rural areas back to the ministry. There are so many places where you could lose information. Information could be, you know, be mistranslated. Yeah, and then you also have just... Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The, the fear. So if you're a Liberian or a Sierra Leonean or Guinean, I don't know if you said that correctly, but um, the reality is there was a lot of fear. Um, there were fear of the virus. And, you know, just because you're sick, you're, you're, people would think your natural incentive would be to go seek care. But because of rumor, because of misinformation, um, people were fearful of identifying themselves as being sick um, because, you know, nine times out of 10, it's not Ebola. Actually, more like 9.9 times out of 10, it's not Ebola. But the reality is, if you meet the case definition, you get sent through a parallel process. Um, and, and there was the a lot of... The reality is that some people probably did contract Ebola after being falsely identified as a... Or after being identified as a suspect. Yeah, especially in the early days. Especially before the response ramped up and you had a lot of uh, Ebola treatment units, ETUs, and community care centers. Um, because once you had that, there was like triage p- procedures in place. There was ability to separate patients between sort of quote unquote red or green areas, wet or dry areas. Um, so that, you know, people were protected when they were in sort of the exposure area. But before that, I mean, a lot of commingling of people, a lot of holding centers. And you're right. I think a lot of people probably did contract Ebola or definitely were exposed to it, um, because they were sick and they didn't necessarily have Ebola. 
So the outbreak was declared officially over in May. And just recently there was news that the first case in however many months had appeared again. Does this mean that the outbreak is returning? I'm not an epidemiologist, so I won't speak to that. But I think that there's probably an argument to be made that there's probably Ebola cases that were not identified. Um, and that maybe this is a result of that. You also have still an ongoing outbreak in Sierra Leone and Guinea um, and a lot of movement between the countries. So even though a lot of procedures have been put in place in the border regions to try to deal with that problem, the reality is there's a lot of ways to get into and into and in between the countries. So um, I think that I don't necessarily know if there's so in the case of Ebola, one case means an outbreak. So if there's one case in the country, then I guess it's an outbreak. Um, I don't know if this necessarily means we'll see what happened in August of last year, but I think the idea that Ebola is gone is definitely not true. And there's a lot more work to be done. So the theme of this week's episode is what we learned from the Ebola outbreak. And you had a kind of a thesis that you came out with after spending two to three months in Liberia during the outbreak. What do you think uh, you took away about information management during an outbreak in a part of the world that's as spread out and not as connected? So I think there's a couple of take takeaways when it talks about information management. So one is I think I got a new appreciation for how appreciation for how important it is. Um, you know, like you mentioned early on, that like that these numbers will come out, and these numbers really guide a lot of the decision making that happens. Uh, they sort of provide the knowledge for how to target your resources and how to see how things are changing. And you know, is it a localized outbreak? Meaning, is it like a family or a set of families that are impacted, or is it widespread? Um, so I think an understanding of the importance of that. I think secondarily is just how big a challenge it is that the infrastructure that's in place can't scale up so readily. So if you're trying to pull information from, let's say, in the case of Liberia, I'll talk about it's 15 counties, 90-some-odd districts, many of those very rural, many of those very inaccessible. Making sure that you have an accurate picture of what's going on, let's say, let's not even use a daily basis, let's say two or three days. It's an immense challenge because it's one you mentioned right away, the quality issues. So from the source, first is fear. People don't want to come forward. Second is human capacity. Like an interview... An interview is, uh, is an investigation. It's a dialogue. Not everyone is a good investigator. And when you needed to get the human resources going to do that, you have to pull on people who are not experienced. And it's not as simple as just asking a questionnaire. Sometimes you need to dig deeper. Um, and that's sort of a, a difficult skill. So how you get the information is a challenge. It's not really as simple as administering a test or something of that nature. Um, and then the ability to move that forward is even bigger challenge. We talked about that earlier. Um, and people like to talk about, you know, we live in kind of this information technology age. You know, there's all these wonderful things, mobile phones, et cetera. But when you're talking about a context like Liberia, there is a mobile phone network. And it is amazing what mobile phones have done for Africa. But getting people discount how hard it is to get those solutions up and running, how hard it is to use them, and how unfamiliar people are with using them as information data entry tools. Um, you know, they're... 
they're mostly consumption tools. People consume information on mobile devices. They don't necessarily, I mean, they use them for input and entry, but as anyone who's tried to type an email on a phone is, it's not fun. As anyone who's tried to do, you know, even like simple banking, it's not fun. And when you talk about information management, it's the human problem and the technology problem. And that maybe rather than investing, you know, thousands, if not millions of dollars trying to roll out mobile phone solutions, maybe the best thing to do is to leverage what's there, which is paper that people are comfortable with, they know, and that there's, you know, just as those other technologies have improved, the ability to grab information or digitize information from paper is also improved. Um, and that maybe just questioning that assumption would help us more rapidly deal with this data management issue in an emergency where you don't have a whole luxury, the luxury to really plan and maintain and deploy solutions. So you, you're saying that instead of having workers at Redemption Hospital and those contract tracers enter information through computers or cell phones that they should just put it on paper and mail it to the Ministry of Health? Well, they were putting it on paper to begin with. I think maybe midway through, applications started coming out. So there's a couple mobile phone applications that came out, particularly for the contact tracers. Uh, one was from eHealth Africa, Sense Tracking, um, and another was from Dimagi, a group uh, based in Boston called ComCare, which I think they've used in a lot of different places. So my argument is not that the technologies were bad. I think in both cases, both companies built really excellent mobile applications. My argument was, is that the right approach given an emergency? Um, I noticed, so I would went out with contact tracers several times, and both when they were not using the technologies and when they were using the technologies. Um, and... You know, oftentimes you would find that they would use both even when they had the technology. So they would go and they would sort of do the, do the interview on paper anyways, and then, um, you know, then go back and then enter it on the phone. Um, and then, you know, there were some issues with the phones and they switched to tablets. So that was a little bit easier to write on. Um, but you know, it, it strikes me as not necessarily giving, so in theory, you're getting the digital information right away. You're also getting some added benefits. Uh, for example, you can get the geolocation of the particular contact or case, which I think is is a benefit, you know, using GPS. Um, but if you're talking about, so like you multiply that. So I think in the areas I was going into, you know, you might have had contact tracing teams of, let's say, maybe 15 to 20 people focused on a pretty local area. Multiply that by like 100 or 200 maybe even more sites, and you're talking about thousands upon thousands of contact tracers. So getting people up to speed on how to use the app, maintaining the application, and maintaining that information is a bigger challenge within the context of an emergency. So what I'm arguing is not that the, necessarily the app was bad. I'm arguing that given that there is something that they're familiar with already and we do have the ability to digitize that information, um, maybe that's a better approach. So... This isn't something that's confined to Ebola. This is a lesson that could be applied for other diseases, other countries. Yeah, so I mean, I think definitely it's not, it's definitely not limited to Ebola. So the reality is, you know, we just had a MERS outbreak in South Korea. Um, you know, obviously bird flu sort of still lingers, and we are in an era where I think these global health threats are going to keep coming up. Um, not to mention we're dealing with a lot of fragility in a lot of places. Um, 
you know, Liberia, Sierra Leone, Guinea is a, is a good example, but think about the huge migrations that are happening in refugee situations. Um, and I've worked in a lot of African countries as well as Asian com- countries, not so much in Latin America, but I think the problems are pro- pretty similar in that a good chunk of their information systems are based on paper. A good chunk of the information related to health contacts and from the hospitals is stored in you know, filing cabinets and ledgers and, you know, they all look pretty much the same wherever you go. It's always some blue book. Uh, and there's a lot of information there that can help. It can help us know, first of all, detect things before they come, but also help shape actions within, you know, within the hospitals to better provide care. But that information is essentially not available. It exists. It's just not available for anyone to use. And, Mobile technology and other sort of technologies have begun to help the problem in the sense that there is investment in these health information management systems. But for many fragile states, it's a very difficult ask. And it's not that I don't think the world should move that way. It's just that this information can help us understand what's happening. It can help the doctors and the nurses and the administrators on the ground help them do what they need to do better. Um, And that maybe rather than going straight away with a very technical solution, leverage what they have what they have at their hands already and try to get the information that way. And that's something we need to do. And it's been on the agenda for most organizations for years and years, but hasn't really had a whole lot of success. Right. I think this is a really interesting point because there's the impulse now to try to solve everything with smartphones or iPads. And even in the U.S., doctors have found that there are some limitations to electronic record keeping. It's not always the panacea that it's expected to be. And it's true, of course, that smartphones and tablets make our lives infinitely easier, but sometimes it's just not the right solution for that point in time and that level of urgency or that particular need. Yeah. And a doctor-patient relationship is an intimate one. It's the one where you need to be talking and examining and you know, sometimes people forget that. Um, we need digital information on those contacts because they give us th- something. But we also need to understand the user experience that's happening, the dynamics, the dynamics of it. I'm, I'm glad you actually mentioned, like, the context of the U.S. Because, I mean, there's a lot of hospitals that use scribes now. <laughs> when you think of a scribe, I think of, like, a pharaoh in Egypt. <laughs> but the fact that we're using scribes now kind of, you know, it hints a little bit about that user experience problem that these EHRs have. Um, so, no, I think it's it's a... It's an important thing to think of. So what can be done to make sure that the next time uh, something like this happens, that we have the right approach for how to organize information as accurately and quickly as possible? And is that what's being done in the in Sierra Leone and Guinea um, to track information now? Yeah, so I think... Um, I think Liberia deserves a shout out here. In particular, uh, Luke Bau and his team, uh, who worked with Hans Rosling, who's a pretty famous epidemiologist. Um, and I think they really showed that getting this information is one, a uh, question of leadership, so prioritizing it. I think, two, it's a question of not always looking for the sexy solution, but just kind of grinding it out to get the information. Um, three, it's about having sort of one point of reference. And I think they did a really good job in Liberia of creating sort of one point of information so that, 
you know, at, before that, I think many different agencies were putting out information and they were contradicting, contradicting each other in terms of the nature of the outbreak. Um, and then once that work started going, it became much more centralized, but not centralized in a bad way, more just one point of contact. Um, so I think that's one thing is having sort of a clear informational chain of command. And, and ideally that re- remains within the local government, I mean, the national governments, because um, it is their countries after all. And so I think in Sierra Leone and in Guinea, there's been efforts to begin to adapt their systems to sort of a similar approach. Um, and that's been gaining steam. I think another change, so I know in Guinea, for example, they've actually changed to using work, working much more with community, basically community leaders or community uh, workers, people who, who know their communities, who know the people, and that's actually helped them identify cases better. Um, so Guinea was having a lot of issues with sort of mistrust and, and issues around, relating to the government. Uh, Liberia, that happened too. Um, I think it happened much more ad hoc in which communities decided to take charge of what was happening. But when you talk about identifying cases, I think having communities involved are the best thing. And once they started changing their behaviors and once they started actively trying to identify potential uh, Ebola cases, I think things really changed. Um, and Sierra Leone is kind of following a similar path where it's also trying to begin to organize its data collection and management efforts. Um, and that's sort of the first step. I think for the future, we need to think of things differently. So the way I like to think about it is when the outbreak basically turned uh, exponential, you needed to have outside help because the country is basically overwhelmed. And, you know, the prospect of cases doubling every three weeks or so is frightening. Um, but so, you know, in this context of you have this, you need this international response, but you have countries that have governments and, you know, there's doctors and nurses, you have to find a way to work together. And I don't think we can be, I mean, the idea that we can prescribe a solution now, I think is, it's not one that I think will work. I think you need to come up with structures in place that are more flexible because each country is different. Each situation will be different. Each disease will be different. Um, you know, one in terms of how it can spread, how infectious it is, all these other things, how it comes in, how it comes into a country. So I think one is local capacity. So if we particularly talk about the information management issue. One of the big things is in a lot of these places, you do not have a very strong IT infrastructure. And I don't necessarily mean even internet infrastructure. You don't have, for example, you can't go to Best Buy and Geek Squad and get your computer fixed. You know, you can't get a tech very easily to come here. And if there is, there's not a whole lot of them. So a lot of solutions, I mean, I know a lot of international organizations, I won't name names, who, you know, for example, would build, brought in their own EHR at an at a Ebola treatment unit. But after two weeks, they couldn't maintain it because once the people who came and installed it left, essentially once something happened, it was done. They would go back to paper. It stayed broken. Yeah, it stayed broken. Um, another one where you're just in such a rural area, there was an organization that, you know, it's a very well-known organization. You know, they, they do this all over the world, but they had a particular rural area base. They couldn't even get a phone signal. I mean, you know, parts of Liberia that you can't get even a phone signal, let alone a, a mobile data signal. Um, and so they use GoPro cameras <laughs> to, you know, to basically take pictures, you know, through the between the wet and dry area. And then they had sat phones. And, and so they kind of had these ad hoc approaches. And so that's just always going to be the case. So like, let's create more flexible structures. Um, I think so one is, I mean, one idea I like to talk about is everyone talks about data and everybody knows the importance of it. 
but they're not willing necessarily to invest in the people to do it. I think we need to invest in the local communities and create more exchange programs. I mean, you know, there's a lot of countries that have very strong design and technology bents. Why can't we do sort of global exchanges where people can learn how to manage this information? It's as much a leadership thought issue as it is a sort of a technical issue. I think another one is you need, so there's certain information that are in countries that are not usable. So in the case of MERS, with the example of South Korea, they used the mobile phone network data to target people. In the case of Liberia, that wasn't accessible. We actually require, we requested it ourselves because we had a data scientist on our team. And just we wanted to experiment with it and see if there's ways we could use to see you know, what we could glean from that data. But it wasn't accessible because the companies weren't providing it. So perhaps in the case of emergencies, we should have some rules governing access to sort of critical data sets. Um, two, there's a lot of like efforts that, like for example, crisis mappers. Wonderful organization. They mobilize around every emergency and they've been doing it for the last four or five years. Um, you know, they use satellite imagery, they use sort of drone imagery, and they use just basically plain vanilla tools to map out areas. But why do we have to wait to do that in a crisis? These are things we take for granted here. Um, you know, we can look on our phones, see Street View, you know, find a local restaurant, and these are things that are a- as valuable. They're, they're as much a national resource um, in these fragile states. And it's really not tremendously costly. Labor is cheaper there. The technologies exist already to do it. It's much more of a management issue than anything. So I think being making sure these these nations are armed with the basics of data about their look about sort of the, about their land, where the location of the health facilities and and, and the, the skills to do that are important. Um, I think there are places where technologies can make a difference. So I know we work with one application. So one tragic story I saw. Um, probably the closest case, closest I ever came to Ebola when I was there. I was in the hospital one morning and a pregnant mother came in and, you know, I was in the medical record room and she came and it wasn't like right, I wasn't right next to her, but she came and, you know, they were forcing her to sign her paperwork and everything like that, but she was clearly in distress. Um, eventually she did that. She went back to the ward. I left the hospital maybe two hours later and then I got a call that, they had suspected they were operating on her, and they had suspected that she had Ebola. So, so that, that was the first moment when they thought that she might have Ebola. Before that, they thought she was just having complications or was sick. Exactly. She didn't. She passed triage fine. They tried to do that, um, but obviously, once the people had operated on her, they had operated on her. I think with partial PPEs, so the personal protective equipment. Um, but there was still a risk there because she was bleeding profusely. Um, and she was really suffering from severe complications. So then they had to whisk her out and take her to a holding center nearby and then test her. And so she has to go through this sort of ping-ponging. But even before she came to the hospital, she also had to do the same thing. She was rejected from another hospital and had to come there. So there was a lot of this sort of moving of people. Potential. She, in the end, there was a false positive, and then she was actually negative. So she tested positive for Ebola initially, and so everyone was like, oh, Everyone was panicking. They were panicking because, you know, she probably at least maybe 12 hospital members had uh, been exposed to her. But, I mean, it brings up this other issue of the referral. You have a lot of movement because everyone's scared. If you're, I mean, even if you're a doctor or you're a nurse and, you know, you lost 20 of your colleagues, you're going to be frightful. And, And so what happens is in a lot of cases, the worst off patients get referred. And they don't get referred for good reasons. They get referred because people are scared and they'd rather it be someone else's problem. So trying to find some way to deal with the referral issue 
which happens actually in normal in the context of normal operation there, but maybe ways of doing sort of some sort of remote consultations or things where people can get care because a lot of people were not getting health care during the Ebola crisis, and a lot of people died because of that. Right, and this is reminding me just how real the consequences of managing information poorly can be. Like you mentioned that hospital workers were exposed to this woman in this case, but fortunately she didn't have Ebola in the end. But there were other hospital workers who died at Redemption and at other healthcare facilities around the country. And then, of course, the thousands of people who died from contracting Ebola. And it's just fact that the better information management is, the less suffering and fewer deaths you'll have during an outbreak. Yeah. Even basic information. Like, so one thing kind of a weird anecdote. So my mother actually is a hospital administrator. And here in the U.S., when Ebola became a big issue, remember when Obama gave that speech, one of the, one of the, real, one of the ways in which information was given to health workers here, doctors on down, was through um, clinical med- medical education, which is a pretty common thing here. You have to take CMEs no matter what you're doing to um, basically get, get up to speed on what's going on. If you look at many fragile states, many poor states, no continuing med- medical education happens. These workers do not get up to speed on infectious uh, infectious disease management. Um, all these con- all, basically all men- all matters of clinical education because it's difficult. It's expensive, right, to do the trainings, etc. Maybe that's a place where we can use mobile technologies to provide education, so that yes, it's expensive, but it's important. Could you imagine if the nurses had had an infection prevention control class, maybe just a few months before the outbreak had come? It may not have saved every life, but it definitely potentially could have. And then once Ebola came, if you could have blasted out to everybody information on how to do that, um, that would have helped. And there were people doing that. There's an organization called IntraHealth based in North Carolina that has a system called MHERO that was doing that. But it was more just alert-based um, and text message-based. But if you could really have an education system for health workers, um, I think that would be another big help. Lots of ways that knowledge saves lives. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining us and telling us about this. Uh, it's a really interesting perspective, um, especially as we put this outbreak to bed and look forward toward improving our response in future outbreaks. Thank you for having me. This has been Radio Motherboard. This is Adrian Jeffries. Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.